This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Felix Villardi is back, and he is the author of the brand spanking new book, Scale at Speed, How to Triple the Size of Your Business and Build a Superstar Team. This book is on top of so many people's book list. I wish I had two or three more hours to have this conversation because I was taking so many notes. There's just so much valuable content contained within the book. There's so much to talk about. We really needed like eight hours to have this conversation. Um, Felix is really a fascinating guy with a fascinating background. He's scaled agencies, taking them to revenue in the several millions. Many of the agencies actually that have been on the show. Uh, in addition to his agency work, he's chaired tech startups in VR and AR, machine learning and crypto businesses. He has become a friend and mentor of mine. And I can tell you from personal experience that he's really changed the way that we view our business. This is just an absolutely fascinating conversation with a very knowledgeable person on all aspects of growing businesses fast. I found this to be a fascinating chat. I think you will as well. Um, with a business leader who, let's face it, has been around the block a few times and knows a thing or two about the nuances of scaling businesses, uh, but doing it fast in many different sectors, from many different types of businesses. So I'm going to stop babbling now and just say, without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Felix Villardi. My extra special guest this week is Felix Velardi. He started one of the world's first web design agencies, then had a high-profile 20-year career as a serial entrepreneur CEO. In 2014, he retired as CEO of a marketing services group and headed off to Burning Man. He came back and started helping businesses scale fast. Many have gone on to become market leaders and several have sold, making their owners millions in the process. This is the third time he's been on the show. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Felix Velardi, welcome back to Agency Dealmasters. Uh, lovely to be back, Nathan. Thank you. Absolute pleasure having you back on the show. If we could speak to you every week, we would. Maybe not every week, but <laughs> <laughs> more often, more often anyway. Congratulations on the book. It's absolutely fantastic. Scale at speed. Um, huge achievement, first and foremost. Massive achievement. Um, let's talk a little bit about the book in a bit of detail. So the book shows you how to put the principles of the 2Y3X framework into practice. And that's your two-year program that has never really failed to at least double a company's revenue. Anyone who wants to rapidly scale their businesses, it's, it's really a must read. Talk about why did you write it in the first place and what can readers expect to get from the book? Yes. So Scale at Speed, How to Triple the Size of Your Business and Build a Superstar Team. I was actually asked to write it by somebody who then became my agent, a literary agent called Kate Barker, who's absolutely amazing. And she was incredibly patient as I wrote it over the course of three years or so. 2Y3X is a program, uh, as you say, it, it's a two-year structured framework for growing a company fast and safely whilst doing several different things. One of the things that it does is it recognizes that the problem, one of the problems with leadership is that as a leader, business leader, you are the bottleneck. And it's incredibly difficult to get other people to shoulder responsibility. I don't mean 
take on senior roles. I just mean mucking in in the same way that when we start businesses, everybody mucks in. You know, you've got your first five or 10 people. Everybody does each other's jobs and helps out. And that kind of stops by the time you get to 20, 30, 50 people. And then you have hierarchies and you've got the sort of people who are at the top of each stack and so on. So the framework is designed to bring in people who will become the future of the business around a common vision and a common plan and to then help that team learn how to execute the plan over the course of two years. And during that time, you get this kind of amazing hockey stick effect. You get the first couple of months of people finding their feet and then uh, they start motoring and then they start delivering and then the business takes off and it's, a, it's, it's wonderful to watch. So it delivers coherence. It gets the leader out of the weeds, which is incredibly important. It gets the leader into a position where they can, they can say, oh, do you know what? There's a whole bunch of people who are taking responsibility for making sure that the business is successful. Now I can focus on the strategic stuff, which might be building the business up for sale or building an international operation or diversifying or starting a new uh, company or whatever it happens to be. So this framework, which... I started using on my own companies and then on the companies in my in the group that I was CEO of. Uh, and then after I kind of semi-retired, as you say, um, I've worked with something like 30 or 35 companies uh, taken through the program. And it's incredibly robust and incredibly resilient. It works really, really well. And up until the beginning of last year, every single company that went through the program doubled its revenue. Some of them tripled mm. its revenue, hence the 2Y, 3X, two years, three times growth. Mm. And then last year, obviously, you know, everything went to hell in a handbasket. So <laughs> Why, what we happened? stopped claiming that on the front of the website. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's super fascinating. So, so tell us where this book sits in the context of other great books about scaling, growth, uh, agency growth in particular, you know, next to good to great and Jim Collins and Patrick Lencioni. And, you know, is it a practical book? Is it a theoretical guide? Describe what kind of book it is. Well, because it's only just been published, it's sold infinitely fewer copies than any of those. And I wouldn't pretend to to sit amongst the pantheon of greats. It does borrow from all of the greats. And some of the principles behind the frameworks, you know, come from Balanced Scorecard, Kaplan and Norton and... Uh, goal setting theory and scaling up and things like that. Uh, so it, it does, it references and builds on and creates a simple sort of methodology from a bunch of stellar books. I mean, I've read hundreds and hundreds of business books and, and this, I, I guess there are several different types of, of business book. Most of them have two or three great ideas. And so it makes them very easy to speed read, for example. And those sort of idea types books or principle books where you, where they've got lots of good advice, but they've got two or three absolute gems that become everlasting kind of mantras, if you like. Good to great is a mm. great example of that. Get the right people on the bus. Yeah, and uh, the hedgehog Stuff concept like that. and things hedgehog, like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Pat Lencioni and the sort of uh, 23 repetitions and all of that sort of inculcation of, Culture, I suppose, as a tautology. Those are great ideas, sort of single or two or three great ideas. Then you have the sort of books that are long lists of things that are considerations, but they don't really explain how you deal with them. They just call your attention to them and say, listen, here's a list. And they are useful primers, but they don't, they're not very helpful. 
And then you've got the sort of manuals and the sort of the masterwork of manuals is scaling up by Vern Harnish, which is incredibly complex and incredibly difficult to implement. Yeah. But it is a, a work of genius. It's a great book. Oh, yeah. my goodness. <laughs> but, but you need a thousand people in order to have the resources to be able to put it in place. Sure. And so what I wanted to do was to take something that would actually work for the sorts of companies that are in my world, the sort of small and medium-sized businesses, the two to 10 million pound companies. And, and you know, my own background is agencies and creative and digital and tech and VR and machine learning and stuff like that. So I wanted to address those companies where you get to that kind of a plateau once you hit 24 people or so, a couple of million revenue or 3.6 million revenue or 4.8 million revenue. You get to this, this point where based on what you've been doing so far, you can't grow any further. It becomes incredibly frustrating and incredibly stressful. And it's likely that as an owner, you're going to be feeling all of the responsibility and none of the pleasure that you used to when things were motoring. And you kind of get stuck in this feast and famine kind of cycle. And it's grim, I know, because I, I did it myself over and over again as a young and then growing entrepreneur of 20 odd years, 22 years. So what I wanted was to articulate a framework that says, do you know what? There is a methodology. It does work. It's been proven over and over and over again to allow you to build the resources and the knowledge and the capability and the motivation and enthusiasm and the buy-in from your team that will take you through the current plateau and motor you on through the next one or two plateaus over the course of a couple of years. And in practice, that, that amounts to doubling or tripling revenue. And it's fun. <laughs> That's the important part of this as well, that it's fun. So talk us through the core components of the 2Y3X program? I mean, what are the core parts of the methodology that we should be aware of? The fundamental thing is we start with the end goals in mind and work our way backwards. It sounds really sort of, oh yeah, well, of course, everybody does that. Nobody actually does it. What we do as leaders, we get stuck in, a, in the moving forward cycle. And what I mean by that is you find yourself in a tunnel pushing all of the stuff and all of the stresses and problems and, you know, client messes and people leaving and all of that. It becomes this burden that you carry or this this load that you're pushing in front of you trying to get through this this interminable tunnel. And it's very, very rare that you get the opportunity to step outside and say, actually, where do I want to go? Where do I really want to go? What do I want this to be? And there's a researcher called Edwin Locke who came up with a thing called goal setting theory, which is incredibly interesting. But it more or less says set a really, really challenging goal because you're more likely to come up with a plan of action to achieve that goal. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff around it, which is endlessly fascinating. So we start at the end. We start at the end of a three-year goal. We set the goal as challenging as we possibly can. And we build the goal around a financial target and a cultural target and a positioning target if you like what do we do how you know how good is what we do and then we focus on the third year we focus on what is happening in that last year just before we reach our goal and we envision that if you like we bring it to life what's going on in the business what are our people doing what processes have we got and so on and so forth then we work backwards. We say, okay, so what's happening in year two in order to get to this year three? 
and then we do the same again with this year. And usually that means that we've we come up with you know fifteen or eight uh, twenty tasks that need to be done this year in order for us to progress to year three. And those twenty tasks, call it. We then divide those up amongst a, a superstar team, and then we coach the team through the process of creating definitions for their tasks, uh, defining what good is going to look like, teaching them what best practice is, and getting them to figure out how to apply that to their own business. And then we shepherd them through the process. And, it, and it's it's exhilarating. It really is. Watching a team coming together and, and starting to have confidence in their own capability, which really can only come from either an external perspective or fantastic leadership to be able to bring the best out of the team. And, and the way that we work is we flatten everybody. So we bring together a superstar team, not necessarily the seniors in the business. And we put the CEO or the senior managers on the same level. And then we build this team around this sort of flat, zero hierarchy team that's just there to make proactive, positive changes to the business. Hmm. I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask you about <laughs> the team and building, hmm. you know, A players and, and getting the right people on the bus. Just before we do that, you say, I mean, there are a couple of things that I want to kind of highlight, really, because there are some really interesting little parts of the of the book that I want to make sure that we talk about. You say, quotes, learning how to delegate early means the effects of mistakes are localized. Explain. Okay, so... Here's something really, sorry, sidetracked for a second. It's really funny because I haven't heard the audio book. And there is actually a very elegant diagram in the book, which looks like a pyramid. And, I, and the book hasn't been released yet. because We're recording this a few days early. But Roger Davis, who's the narrator of the book, has come up with an audio description of every diagram that's in the book. So I'm absolutely fascinated to, <laughs> to, to hear how he's described what I'm just sure. about to describe. So delegation is critically, critically important for liberating leadership. And, you know, you've probably heard uh, me and others say that the most important seven words for a CEO or a leader are, I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's it's the Harvard Business Review's number one rule is don't take the monkey on your back, give it back to the person who's trying to Mm -hmm. give it to you. Mm -hmm. Delegation is an incredibly important uh, part of the way that you run business. Because you're, you're trusting people to take responsibility. And if you trust people to take responsibility, they will do that. The problem is, if you only delegate to the most senior people in the business, and then they don't delegate, what happens is that the things that could go wrong if they get it wrong could be business critical. So it's incredibly important to get delegation training done at the very earliest stages of somebody's career. And the reason I say that is because if I, as a junior manager with my first report, start saying to that report, I don't know, what do you think? And asking them to think for themselves and to come to me with solutions or potential solutions, I can easily say to them, great, okay, well, I'm not sure which one I would do, but why don't you take the one that you think is the strongest um, suggestion and try it? and check in with me tomorrow or at the end of the week, and we'll see how it's going. Now, the worst that can happen is they try it and it fails. Hmm. If you're doing that at the lowest levels of the company, then a failure is not going to be business critical. It's be tiny. 
you know, the consequences of a, of a small delegated failure are small. And by delegating at that point, you become more confident in delegating and in deciding what to delegate and how to define the parameters of good delegation. And as an employee or a staff member, I get used to being given the responsibility to make my own decisions. And as my confidence grows and my seniority grows, I'll be able to make bigger and bigger and better decisions with greater confidence. So by the time I'm in a leadership position and I'm asking my seniors to make business critical decisions and, and giving them responsibility to take on, you know, things that could really affect the business, uh, I can be confident that they are confident in their decision-making ability. Tell us the story of the big red button and what lessons did it teach you about people? <laughs> this actually happened to me and it's, it's going to sound really silly, but it had an absolutely profound effect on me. I was walking down the Charing Cross Road towards uh, Trafalgar Square one evening. It was a sort of, it was exactly that time where it's just gone slightly too dark to see properly, but it's not quite night. Mm. And I happened to glance up and there was black smoke pouring out of the top floor window of a pub. And I thought, you know, I ran into the pub and I said, there's fire and, and nothing happened. And I went up to the bar and I yelled, there's a fire. <laughs> and absolutely nothing happened. And, and I was shouting at all of these people in this pub, sozzled people on a Friday night after, after work in Soho. Right. And nothing. So I went and bashed my elbow into one of the, the fire alarms, at which point everybody just went, looked at me as though I just destroyed their <laughs> evening. Right? Well, you have, yeah. Felix. Or are but you I interrupting yeah, exactly. my pain? Exactly. Completely. <laughs> and then I found the fire brigade and there's a fire station just up the road in Charing Cross Road or just Shaftesbury Avenue. It, it came down the street in about 30 seconds flat, by which point people were coming out the pub. And this enormous man in a fireman's uniform uh, came up to me and said, uh, were you the one who called it in? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, when I say push this big red button and on the fire truck just behind the cab, there's a big red button. Mm. And I'm looking at it thinking, Wow. Anyway, he, he yelled over at me, so I pushed the big red button and all the feet came out of the bottom of the fire truck, the stabiliser feet, and then they put up the ladders and it was all kind of chaos and we all got pushed back and, and that was it, you know, no more interaction, except it profoundly affected me hmm. because it was, I don't know about you, but, but when you're a child, you know, growing up to be a fireman or, you know, there's so much cultural loading of you know, just wanting to have that uniform and the big yellow hat and all that, and all that kind of sort of excitingness. Sure. And it tapped into this. And I have, you know, on reflection, it's probably a big red button with absolutely, it does absolutely <laughs> nothing because right. you know, who'd be fool enough to actually let a member of the public do something <laughs> like that. But from, from a meaningful rewards point of view, it was absolutely stunning. And this happened when I was like 44 or something. So it's not like, <laughs> you know. Actually, you were a child. <laughs> you were old enough to know you, better. But you know what? <laughs> Even now, I still think it's the best reward I have ever been given for anything in my entire life. Amazing. And I just, in the context of work and business, the reason the story is actually in the book is because leadership and, and you know people always saying to me, you know, what reward should we give the people on the growth lab team? You know, what the, this superstar team who's going to double our revenue with us, what should, you know, should they be getting share options? Should we be giving them a pay bump or whatever? The answer is basically no. 
the reward is about whether or not it's meaningful activity. And the people who should be on this team should be the people who feel that the privilege of being able to shape the future of the company, be able to build and change. And the reward is doing the work itself mm. in exactly the same way that as a leader, the reward is being is building your own company. It's not the, mm. you know, three million quid at the other end of it or whatever it happens to be. It's, it's Although it's nice. Yeah, it's nice, but it, I tell you something, it's rare. Mm. You know, I had six agencies and I ran an agency group that had 12 agencies within its sort of uh, framework. And I never, I, you know, the number of millionaires that I've made since ending my agency career are far, far, far <laughs> strips the number of times I've made myself. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah. So but it's got to be meaningful. And, and, and I think that when you're designing reward systems and reward structures, money is not the answer. Sure. And usually something to do with culture and something to do with core values is the answer. And if you can address that, just like my, my big red button, the, that reward to me remains the biggest reward I've ever had, mm. despite having had one or two fabulous paydays in my time. That's really interesting. And yeah, if you read anything that Dan Pink says, you know, drive on kind of intrinsic human motivation and what it takes mm. for people to bring their best selves to work, then it's not about financial, you know, to a point, um, everyone needs to be, needs to feel as though they're valued and their, their work is being um, fairly paid for. But over and above that, there are other things, other more fundamental things that drive human beings. I totally agree with you. Mm. And that kind of brings us on to the question around core values and, and purpose. Mm. So last question on this, because I want people to kind of go away and sort of read the book because it's an absolutely fascinating book. And we can talk it to death by talking about <laughs> it, but actually listening to it you know, on the audio book or actually reading it is, is what you know, we want people to do. What have you learned about the importance of core values to the intrinsic motivation of building a team and a purpose and how should companies best use them? It's interesting. So let's, let's define something for a second. Core values is not the crap that you see on people's websites. This is not creativity or the customer comes first. Yeah, all of the, this is frankly bull that just ends up on the website because you think that that's what your customers want to see. Core values is what drives you personally. What are your red lines? What are the things that absolutely drive your life? Yeah, I would love to think that my core values, I'm sure I used to think that my core values included continuous learning or um, hard work. And, and yet, in reality, I'll, I'll go for two or three years without reading a damn thing and <laughs> um, I'll be as lazy as I possibly can at every possible opportunity. Right. Um, so they're not core values. They're, they're desirables and nice to have. My personal core values boil down to honour. And basically that's it. And I think that identifying your, your own core values is incredibly important. And, and the reason I think that it's important is because several different things. One is that when you get a team together that works beautifully well together and you ask them and you interrogate and you unpack and you unlock people's core values, what you will find is that they share their core values. They can be from incredibly diverse backgrounds. Mm. I've got an incredibly diverse company. All of my colleagues from all over the world, from every culture, with every kind of 
you know, uh, I suppose diversity signifier that you can possibly think of. Mm. And yet we all share exactly the same two or three core values. Mm. And the reason that that's important is because you will find that you have people that you work with who you might describe as C players, people who aren't engaged or aren't engaged in the way that you think that they ought to be engaged, who may be disruptors or naysayers or negative or just, you know, kind of checked out. Mm. And what's really interesting is when you look at core values, what you find is those people just don't share their core values. And quite often, Jim Collins talks about getting the right people on the bus. It's incredibly important not just to find the right people to get on the bus. It's also incredibly important to move the wrong people off the bus, if that makes sense. Sure. And I found time and time again that those people then go somewhere else where they become A players, where they become superstars, because suddenly they're in the right culture, they're they're in the right, they share the values with the leadership and so on. Mm. So identifying core values gives you corporate coherence and cohesiveness, and it allows people to trust each other. Because if I know that everybody in my team is going to behave honorably, for example, then I don't really have to worry about very much. I can worry about people, you know, screwing things up every now and again, but I don't have to worry about people's integrity, right? And that's an incredible, this trust and the ability to rely on other people allows you, it's liberating, it allows you to give people responsibility and allows you to free yourself up as a leader to be more strategic. Hmm. Couldn't agree more with you, Felix. Felix, last couple of questions before we get into our our favorite questions at at, at the end of the uh, interview that we ask all of our guests, as you know. So, I mean, first and foremost, you've done an amazing job writing the book. I I found it extremely practical. I mean, we're going on our own journey of building an agency at the moment. And as you know, we speak to a lot of agency owners and, and business owners and the level of depth that you've gone into around the challenges of growing a business and how best to structure a business for growth, I found amazingly practical and valuable. And I haven't really come across a similar sort of framework in other books that I've read recently. And I, you know, I found it really refreshing, the depth and the detail that you go into. So congrats on on that. Final question, really, for me is, if there was just one idea that you really wanted readers to take away from the book, what what would it be? Oh, set your sights higher. (laughs) <laughs> love it i mean there the reality is there are, there are several really really important takeaways one is uh, trust your superstars and they don't have to be senior people they can be junior people I, I love growth lab teams that we put together usually there's a 21 year old who you just know is going to be running their own show in a few years time and that kind of uh, being able to build in responsibility is amazing but this idea that um so going back to feast and famine, one of the problems with feast and famine is kind of porpoising that you get as an agency, which is universal, by the way. When you hit these plateaus, these uh, sort of ceilings, if you like, and you get into feast and famine because you don't know how to kick yourself over the line and move into the next phase of growth, uh, which is the role of the program two y three x, and what scale at speed hopes to give you. One of the problems is that as leaders, we are tempted to say, okay, well, this year we're going to do 10% more than we did last year or 15% or 20% more than we did last year. The problem with the 20% goal is it's more or less within the margin for error 
in feast and famine. Hmm. You get your timing slightly wrong and you won't make any progress at all. You may even go backwards. Hmm. And that's incredibly disheartening. And eventually that's, it wears you down and your morale goes out the window. Hmm. Then your team's morale goes out of the window and then your business in, is in very high risk territory. And you want to be in a situation as a leader where your spouse and your family is applauding your successes, not supporting you in failure. Hmm. And, and, and I say that from experience. You know, I, I had a couple of agencies that uh, one of them went actually went bust and, and another almost went bust. And, and it's incredibly demoralizing and incredibly stressful. And it's a three-year process to get out hmm. the other end of it. Hmm. So setting a goal that is kind of within reach and seems reasonable sounds sensible can be fatal and the best that can happen is that you hit your 20 percent and you've grown from 1 million to 1.2 million or 2.4 million to whatever that is 2.7 million right it's not a great deal of growth so if you set a goal that is say 70 percent a year you do that two years in a row and, and you've doubled your revenue. If you do that three years in a row, then you've tripled your revenue. It's great. This, this. And if you miss a 70% goal and you only do 40%, mm. yeah, 40% a year for two years, double revenue. Right? So it's just, it's, it's wonderful. And also when you set a goal that's 70%, a 70% increase, it fundamentally changes the way that you approach that problem. You know, a 20% increase, it's like, okay, let's do more of this, more or less the same, but just a little bit more. But if you're talking about 70% or 100%, then it's it forces you to ask very different questions about where is this revenue going to come from? Or how are we going to make this work? And, and that's the point of the book. The point of the book is that it's a manual for how do you make those completely different decisions and how do you facilitate that in a team that already exists mm. in a company that already exists is how do you create fundamental structural and systemic change over a very short period without risking the business at all and the formula is actually very simple in practice and it becomes fun it's just it's not the sort of thing that you think of first time round. Steve Jobs famously said, "You can only join the dots looking backwards. Hmm. Yeah, you can only you can only see the patterns once you've been there a few times." And I had so many failures and so many agencies, and, and actually quite a few really good successes. But I have seen the, this pattern from the other end over and over again. So you get to see how to make these leaps and how to make it work. Felix, absolutely fascinating speaking to you. Congratulations on, on the book once again. I think you've done a, a fantastic job. Um, and I think everyone should go out and get a copy for themselves uh, and their co-workers. Let's jump into everyone's favorite questions. Now, these are the questions <laughs> that I ask all of my guests. I've asked you some of these before, so I'm going to change it slightly for you now. <laughs> What's the most interesting thing that people don't know about Felix Villardi? Well, given that I've, I've used up some of these in the past <laughs> with you, Oh, did I ask you that one before? Uh, you did, but it's fine. Oh, okay. I'll change it. I'll change it. <laughs> no, 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 I can no, ask no, a different like one. No, 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 okay, no, go like ahead. <laughs> I was once flown to Rome to give a three-minute presentation <laughs> in front of 600 people, and I stood up in front of 600 people who'd flown in from all over the world to see this new World Wide Web thing that I was presenting, and the tech failed. <laughs> and I was left stood on a stage with no media oh. and and i learned 
then the, if you've got slides or if you've got multimedia reel or whatever it happens to be, be mm. prepared for it not to work. Mm. I headlined a drum conference a few years ago on agency growth and uh, same thing happened. They spent 10 minutes trying to get the, the show on the road. So I told the story about my trip to Italy and which got me past the awkward bit and then went full flow into the presentation with that presentation. It's so much easier to not use slides because you can adjust to your audience. Mm. And uh, so big lesson learned. Really interesting. You just want the ground <laughs> to swallow you up in those instances. Oh my goodness, it was awful, yeah. God, horrible, <laughs> horrible. The books question. I know, you, I know you're a big reader of mm. books. I ask you this question all the time, but what <laughs> have you read since the last time that we spoke that really stands out? What have been some of your favorite books over the years? Yeah. So I actually read quite a few books recently and I've, I've just taken delivery of a book that I'm really interested in reading, Building a Story Brand by somebody called Donald Miller, um, which I'm looking forward to reading. It arrived this morning. I went on a speed reading course a few years ago and that's allowed me, gives me the tools to strip mine books. But every now and again, I find myself diving into one and, and just really, uh, I don't know, relishing it. The one that has had the most salutary effect brought me up short and brought me and got me rethinking quite a lot of things recently was scarcity the true cost of not having enough ah you told me about that book yeah it's by Sendhil uh Melanathan and Elder Shafir and it's 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 about the bandwidth tax that the pressure of poverty imposes and it's just a reminder that we are incredibly privileged mm. and we should do something about that yeah and I think that that's really, really important. And there's, you know, LinkedIn, unfortunately, there seems to have been a, a you know, everybody's found the formula for virtue signaling on LinkedIn, which is <laughs> frankly... Uh, another another topic for another conversation. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it just, just it, it gets so wearing seeing people sort of saying, oh, you know, I've got a black friend. So, oh, <laughs> Jesus no, is, that, <laughs> is that what you see? Is that is that the sort of thing you see on LinkedIn? It, oh, it's, I, it's, it's just, more pervasive it's, these it, days. It is, yeah, it's it's this sort of you know, I'm going to tell you a story. Here's this moment of vulnerability. This is how I applied it to my business. Please mm. give me a like. Right? It's it's exactly mm. this formula of crass mm. sort of uh, faux. I don't know. And it just it does my head in. Yeah, it does your head in, yeah. Yeah. But <laughs> really interesting. No, that book is I, I I think that book is fantastic. I went into it kind of skeptical off the back mm. of your recommendation. I was like, hmm, Felix is recommending books. I'm skeptical. But I'm joking. But <laughs> I read it and it's totally bang on. I mean, whenever I've been in a tight financial position, the way that you think changes. You you don't mm. think rationally, you don't think long term and next week you only think about now and in the immediate and for so many people that are in dire straits in poverty you 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 think why aren't they thinking in different ways why aren't they doing different things to help them themselves get out of it but actually you realize the poverty the, the pressure that poverty puts on you doesn't allow you to think in in any other way and i thought it was a really fascinating book and a, and a great recommendation so since then i've taken your recommendations felix on, <laughs> on, on books <laughs> last question and then I'll, I'll let you go what do you know about growing businesses and scaling businesses today that you wish you knew at the very beginning of your career 
Right, this is going to sound really self-serving and cheesy, but everything that I've written about in Scale at Speed... (laughs) Comes full circle. It kind of does. The reason for that is I started out as a rebel, as you know, and I've said this before on Agency Deal Masters. You know, I had blue hair when I started. I just wanted to break the advertising industry because I thought it was filled with wankers. And and I thought that the internet and digital was just, was going to revolutionise things. And... I was quite successful in helping to, you know, being part of that group of people, that generation of people that changed the way that things work and changed the world in a a tiny way and set the sort of blueprint for the way that marketing works and the way that comms works for the future. And And while I was successful at that, I actually didn't know how to run a business. I simply didn't know. I had never been managed well. I don't think I'd ever had a job that I wasn't fired from. So it was kind of, I, I had this early period of, that lasted for a good 10 years of building these famous agencies and then selling some of them without actually knowing what I was doing. Mm. And had I had a resource or resources that I found easy enough to implement or to understand and implement, then uh, it would have made my life so, so much easier. And I, the reason that I wrote the book in the first place is because I want everybody else to have that. I want, you know, we've been running businesses exactly like this for 170 or 180 years, right? We've been running agencies for 170 years, exactly the same way, right? It's not rocket science. You don't have to do this over and over again through trial and error. You don't have to keep bashing your head against the wall until it gets bloody. It's, there's no point because all of the knowledge is out there. And what I've tried to do with the book is to bring all of that knowledge into a place to make it easy so that you can get on with changing the world, so that you can have social impact, so that you can mm. change things so that they are better than they were yesterday and and better for other people in the future, so that you can change the world for a better without being hamstrung by the fact that you don't know how business works. Because business actually is fairly straightforward, but only once you know how to do it. And I now know how to do it. My colleagues now know how to do it. And we're in a privileged position of being able to tell everybody else. So that's what the book is for, is to is to take all of that trial and error, angst and pain and frustration and stress out of the way so that you can, can get on with doing amazing things. Because that's what entrepreneurialism is about. It's about creating new stuff. Hmm. Couldn't have said it better myself absolutely enjoyed you being back on the show Felix thank you so much congratulations on the new book we'll put links to where people can go and get the book in the show notes Felix thank you so much for doing this thank you so much for having me on been brilliant we have been speaking with Felix Villardi he is the co-founder of the 2Y3X program and the author of Scale at Speed if you enjoyed this conversation then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to over 130 such conversations we've had with world-class leaders in sales, marketing, agency land. Go down the list. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at Nathan at agencydealmasters.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Nathan Barber. We would be unable to do this show without our very own Dealmasters. Tyler Baller is our editor. Christoph Buaszczek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Barber. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters.
What if I told you there was a way that you or your clients could speak directly to a captive audience of senior agency leaders, CEOs and managing directors of some of the biggest agencies in the world? Well, that's what you get when you sponsor the Agency Deal Masters podcast. We have thousands of monthly listeners from all over the world, and it's not just agency owners. Over 25% of our audience are also senior marketing brand leaders from the likes of Aviva, BMW, Salesforce, and Google. As we continue to attract big names to the show like Adobe, Revolut, and Virgin Money, you can be sure that Agency Deal Masters will be the place for you to get your brand's message directly into the ears of the people that you want to be speaking to. So head over to agencydealmasters.com slash sponsor or email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com to find out more.